You're listening to Nonprofit Confidential, episode number one. Welcome to Nonprofit Confidential. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Sheila Nimishakabi, the president of Third Suite, a consulting firm specializing in early stage, small to mid-sized organizations. Here, it is my job to tease out tips, tricks, and hacks from exceptional nonprofit organizations and share them with you. On this podcast, you'll hear interviews with everyone from nonprofit executive directors to office managers, volunteer coordinators, board members, basically nonprofit staff at every level. My goal here is to share with you actionable tips from nonprofits for nonprofits. Every now and then, I'll sprinkle in a listener question episode so that all of your questions get answered. Before we jump into the show, this episode is brought to you by Third Suite's new course, Nonprofits for Newbies. This course is perfect for anyone who is new to the nonprofit field, moving up in their career, perhaps taking on more management and administrative roles, as well as first-time board members. Nonprofits for Newbies offers a deep dive into both fundraising and administration. If you decide to sign up, you'll receive an exclusive invitation to the private Facebook group where you can chat with third suite consultants as well as your peers. The course launches in January of 2019, but if you sign up now and use the code NONPROFITCONFIDENTIAL, you'll receive 10% off the early bird rate that's being offered right now. Head on over to third suite, that's T-H-I-R-D-S-U-I-T-E dot com to check that out. Okay, guys, I am so excited to share this first episode with you. It features an interview with one of my longtime friends, Jeff LaFada. Jeff is a founder and executive director of Empowering People for Inclusive Communities, or EPIC. On this episode, we talk about what it takes to start a nonprofit organization, choosing between establishing an independent nonprofit versus a fiscal sponsorship, learning to let go, and so much more. Without further ado, here's my interview with Jeff LaFada. Hey guys, welcome Jeff. Thanks so much for joining me on my podcast here. Epic has really come so far from the days of, you know, meeting at your local Starbucks to plan service days. So I'm really excited for you to share your journey with our listeners. Before we get into EPIC, which is Empowering People for Inclusive Communities, can you share a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So I grew up in Essex, which is about 45 minutes to an hour north of Boston, super small town. And as soon as I graduated high school, I was out of there. So for me, I, as far as my life and what led me to EPIC, I did AmeriCorps right out of high school. I did two years of city or Boston, working in Boston public schools. And then after that, I traveled a little bit and then started working in the disability field and was there within the field for about 10 or so years before starting EPIC. Cool. So was there something that like drove you to the disabilities field specifically? I always kind of wanted to work in the disability field. I always wanted to be a teacher. And for a long time, I was specifically going to be a teacher for the deaf. And then it just morphed into being a special ed teacher. So I have a cousin with Down syndrome. And so at a very young age, I connected with her in a way that I felt like this was the work that I wanted to do. And so that's what initially had drawn me to it was the idea of being a special ed teacher. 
Oh, wow. That, that's really interesting. You know, because we always hear so often about, you know, finding what motivates us, what drives us, you know, follow your passion. And, you know, in the nonprofit field specifically, you're working really long hours for very little pay. The work can be mentally and emotionally exhausting. So it's almost like you need something deeper than passion or motivation to keep you going. And it sounds like you found your why in helping young people with disabilities. So how did you know that this was your purpose? Was there some moment that kind of made things clear for you or was it just a gradual process? I would say it was a gradual process. At a young age, I might have known I wanted to work with young people with disabilities. But in my first year of city, I worked in a special ed classroom, which to me was perfect. I want to go to college for special ed. So I was placed in a special ed classroom and I loved my students. I loved the school. I hated what I was doing. Um, <laughs> and so I realized really quickly, this is a demographic I want to work with, but this isn't the setting for me. So then it took time of doing just youth work in general to realize, okay, Youth work is something that I want to do. Disability work is something that I want to do, but I need to find the right avenue to do that. That fits my passion and, and my expertise in a way that's actually going to be beneficial to the work that I'm doing. Yeah, that's really good advice. I think just sometimes winnowing down what you don't want to do helps you narrow in on what you do want to do. And it just takes so much experience to get there. So let's talk a little bit about Epic. So you've been working in the disabilities field, you did City Year, mm -hmm. and how did you decide to start Epic? So I've been in the disability field working with youth and adults in schools and out-of-school programs and residential programs for about 10 years. But during that time, I was also doing a lot of volunteer work for other youth leadership programs. And over time, when I was realizing these programs that I was volunteering for that very much spoke to my passion didn't have the young people in the programs that I had dedicated my career to. And so to me, that was the missing link of a lot of these programs I was also volunteering for were programs that I did when I was in high school. So I knew the power of them participating in them, not just as a staff member or a volunteer. So for me, starting Epic was how do I get young people who I've dedicated my career to into the settings that I know were successful for me and in, in my transition to adulthood. So that's really where the idea came from. Very cool. So let's see, can you talk a little bit about Epic service model? And so what did you guys do and why you chose this particular model? Because, you know, Service Warriors has a very specific What's the word? It's very, the program's very regimented. So can you talk through how you came up with that idea and why you chose that model? Yeah. So Epic actually has a couple different programs and they all kind of exist for different reasons. The program that Epic was founded on was the Service Warrior Program. So that is a one-year community service and leadership development program for transition youth with disabilities where over the course of the year, they do community service projects and leadership development trainings. It's a competitive program. So like a job, they have to apply, be accepted, and then they have to stick to this commitment for the year. So it is a lot more rigid in the fact that there are very clear expectations for them coming in. And the idea for that really became came from a couple of things. One, I know how those type of programs helped me in preparing for adulthood. But two, we often set such low expectations for young people with disabilities that they've never been in a setting where they actually have to apply for something and be accepted into it, that they are held to a commitment and a standard. And so that's really where a lot of the ideas around 
the overall commitment and model comes from is setting these young people up for success. If they get used to a schedule and wearing a uniform and doing all of these things that are part of Epic, it makes them more job ready. They're ready to go out in the world and actually keep that commitment and understand that you don't get everything you want. Because unfortunately, not every young person who applies to be a service warrior becomes a service warrior. They have to come back the next year and apply again. So that's where the model for service warriors came up. The service component to it, though, really came in because that is job readiness, right? Mm -hmm. Through service, you learn skills, vocational skills and independent living skills to get you ready for a job. And we know that young people who are engaged in service are at a greater chance of being employed and staying above poverty level. So for young people with disabilities who are part of a community that is the largest minority group in poverty today, this is something that's needed. And within our communities, service is something that's pushed on young people. It is often a graduation requirement for young people in high school, but that requirement is waived for young people with disabilities. Really? I know that. Yeah. So that's where... Epic becomes really important because we are making other young people do this and then not letting young people with disabilities do this. So Epic is giving them that opportunity to really become engaged in their communities and to prepare for adulthood and everything that that means. But Epic didn't start with that program. That was the goal, but it takes a lot of money to pull that off. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so we actually started with our community training. So we travel around and teach trainings for youth and adults with and without disabilities on topics of disabilities. So that gave us a way in the beginning for me to get the word out about Epic, to start to bring in some revenue and to really build a name and a brand for Epic so that a year later we could then launch the Service Warrior program. Yeah, that sounds great. Can you talk a little bit about the types of trainings you guys offer and maybe the type of audience that that's tailored towards? Yeah. So it is actually a wide range of trainings and audiences. We work with Boston Public Schools. And so Epic staff work with 36 special ed classrooms and high schools across Boston, working with the youth in those classrooms around how to be a self-advocate. And we look at that in two ways with them, how to be a self-advocate in school. So how do you run your own IEP meeting and take control of your education? And then how do you become an advocate outside of school? And what does that look like? And then we do trainings for youth workers and teachers around how to be more inclusive in your programming. And then our most popular training, which is for youth and adults, across the spectrum as far as the type of work that they do is our ableism trainings. And so there we're looking at this system of oppression, just like racism and heterosexism and sexism, of how are we perpetuating ableism in our society and how do you start to address that in your work, no matter what your work is. Fantastic. Yeah, those those trainings are, I've sat in on the ableism trainings before and they are just so needed. That message just needs to get out, you know, across all sectors, everyone needs to know this information. So I'm going to get really in the weeds here because I think there are some listeners who would be interested in starting their own nonprofits or have at least thought about it, you know, at some point. Mm -hmm. So once you decided to start Epic, what was the first thing you did? Like, literally how like what did you to get started did you write out a business plan did you call your mom and say i'm gonna do this like what was the first thing you did so i don't specifically remember the first thing i do remember in the beginning i lived by myself in a one-bedroom apartment and my bedroom became 
all the walls were covered in flip charts of <laughs> lists of resources and statistics and ideas and drafts of a mission statement. I definitely had one or two friends in the beginning that due to the different types of work they did, I was bouncing ideas off of them to really look at, is this possible? And then once I got to a point where I was like, this is possible, then the next phone call actually was to my mother. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> To see what her gauge was going to be and when she was like, this is awesome, do it. For me, it was like, okay, this is something that if if she understands where I'm going with this, then this makes sense for me. So then as things got going, I, I did have a clear mission statement pretty quickly. The name and the mission were the first things that I really did once I decided to do this. And then after that, it just kind of slowly evolved into like the social media and coming up with a vision statement and starting to design a website and really looking at how do I get funding and all of that. But it did for me, once the decision was, yes, I'm going to move forward, the name and the mission came first for me. Great. Yeah. You know, I think that's actually really good advice that you explained things to your mom who doesn't work in the same field as you. Mm -hmm. So you explained it to someone who doesn't have a background in disabilities work or even nonprofits, right? Right. So I think if you get someone who's totally outside the field and they buy into your mission and, you know, see the vision that you have, I think that shows that you have a viable idea (laughs) and that you've like, you've thought it enough that you know how to vocalize it in a way to get other people to believe in what you're doing. Yeah. I think the other thing that's important is everyone who I talked to about it was on board with it, but they didn't all get it, which can be disappointing, but it actually proved for me that this is why it's needed. So a lot of people were like, that's a really great idea, but do young people with disabilities want to do community service? Can they do community service? And for me, it was like, well, okay, now you're proving to me yeah. even more that this has to be done. So I think if people are considering it, the support is great. The yeses are great, but realizing that sometimes the misconceptions and misunderstandings and not not totally being on board is actually sometimes even a bigger reason of why you should be doing this and moving forward with it. Yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah, it's it's so easy to surround yourself with, you know, your cheerleaders who yeah. are all telling you, yeah, 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 go do it. But sometimes stepping outside of that and hearing no, it kind of makes you think of things in a different way and can give you, you know, more fuel to the fire. So, Epic decided to go the route of a fiscal sponsorship as opposed to getting incorporated as an independent nonprofit. Mm -hmm. So how did you make that call? And do you have any advice for listeners on how to make that decision? Yeah. So for me, first of all, when I started Epic, it wasn't even necessarily I was going to start my own nonprofit. It was this is programming that needs to happen. It was after talking to other nonprofits about possibly bringing it there and them saying good luck, that it became clear <laughs> that, okay, I need to go this different route. For me, doing fiscal sponsorship purely came down to resources and money. I did not have the resources and money to run this program out of my house mm-hmm. and be incorporated as a 501c3 and everything that that means and to run the whole show by myself. Whereas fiscal sponsorship, it took some of the weight off of my shoulders and let me get the support from an existing stable nonprofit to be able to grow the programming and not have to 
still had to worry about the money clearly, but not have to worry about like the accounting and all of those pieces and having that taken care of really made it so I could focus more. So for me, as soon as I learned about fiscal sponsorship, it wasn't even a question. The question just became who was the right fiscal sponsor for Epic. I see. But Epic still does have its own advisory board. So could Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that structure and how you use the advisory board and, you know, how do you utilize all of these professionals you have access to through your fiscal sponsorship, but then also your advisory board. Yeah. So the advisory board really does in a lot of ways function just like a board of directors for us, except that they don't get final approval of our budget because we are under the other nonprofit that comes from their board. But other than that, we're using our advisory board in many of the traditional ways that boards are used. Our board really helps with the fundraising efforts, with community outreach, with growing Epic, with supporting Epic staff. But that's changed a lot over the years in in how that board functions from a very me, executive director driven board to a board that is functioning on their own. And I am just in the meetings to represent the Epic staff. And I think that's something that I wish I had known earlier how to do, because I think it does alleviate the stress on me having the board function pretty much on its own is a greater support than creating more work like it did feel like in the beginning for a little bit. Yeah. And you know, that's such a problem that a lot of executive directors face is that it almost comes down to the job of the ED is to manage the board and grow the board and kind of, you know, watch what they're doing, make sure they're staying on track with their deliverables and fundraising and all that. So, you know, the ability that Epic has had to have kind of a separate solely functioning advisory board where you can then just come in and say, hey, this is what we're working on, get to it. You found that really nice balance between support and still having a group of people to to work with. So I guess kind of, you know, switching gears here a little bit. Did you have a mentor, whether, you know, they knew it or not, um, who guided you or, you know, like a tribe of people that you relied on for resources? In my field of work, I always had some mentors. Usually they don't realize they were my mentor, but I had (laughs) mentors. (laughs) They never do. But within starting Epic, there were definitely people that I turned to more. And a lot of them weren't, some of them were mentors in the traditional sense where you think of someone who's older and more experienced. Some of them were mentors in the sense of, you just know this aspect of something like, you know, PR or, you know, fund development. And I don't, I came into Epic very much a program person. Mm -hmm. So being able to have friends and past colleagues who knew that information, being able to, to have them mentor me a little bit in how to make sure that I'm doing everything, not even the correct way, but making sure I'm not forgetting things along the way was really important to me. But I definitely did have mentors too in the beginning that they were, as things started, the ones who I first reached out to just to be like, you have a lot of experience in nonprofits or in starting nonprofits. Let me pick your mind and let me learn from your mistakes or hear how you did it and if that might work for me or not work for me. Yeah, that makes sense. So did you feel like when you reached out to, say, professionals, so you mentioned PR, so Mm -hmm. if you were to reach out to someone, a friend who has PR experience, 
as the founder, did you feel like you had to know every aspect of PR and fundraising and, you know, cause you came to it from such a programmatic background, yeah. but as the ED, did you feel like it was part of your responsibility to know every aspect of the business or were you comfortable kind of handing it off? Oh, I was totally not comfortable with handing it <laughs> off. So no, I did. I felt like I needed to know all of it or I would semi hand it off where I still had the end control over everything, but yeah. trusting someone <laughs> to like start to mold things for yeah. me to then take over. Yeah, um, Epic's your baby. That's it, hard. It, it is. <laughs> and I, but I think that's the reality of starting a nonprofit, especially if it's your passion, is like seven years later, I'm still really learning how to let go of some things. I've learned to let go of a lot of it, but like there's still certain things that like I have to trust the board I have to trust the staff to to take it and run and build it in the way that that I can't do and that's something that I've also realized over time is is that you have to trust others to actually be able to grow it beyond your vision and to strengthen it beyond your vision yeah that one really gets me thinking because (laughs) you know it's so hard because you go into it this is like you know your passion you've put all your energy into it you're thinking about it literally 24 7 I mean I remember you in those early days like every Uh conversation was epic like there was nothing else on the table so to go from that to you know I just feel like you'd have to like buy tasks off of your hands because it's so hard to, you know, go from thinking about it nonstop to wait, I need to let go and understand other people may be able to take this beyond my capabilities. Yeah. And that's where I also think it's really important who you're pulling in, especially in the beginning and like the board and recruiting a board that is cross sector, who has that different experience that you can trust and who, you know, are making a a commitment, whatever that commitment is for your board, but you know that they are on your side, at least for a certain amount of time where you can trust them and get the information and support that you need, but it definitely takes time. (laughs) It definitely (laughs) takes time. Man, that's a tough one. Yeah. And you know, you always hear about like a founder syndrome, right? Like you hear about these founders who stick on the board and new EDs come in, new CEOs, but they just can't let go of the organization. And sometimes it does such a disservice to the people the organization serves, but also to the new staff. And it's such a tricky situation, but I see both sides. (laughs) I totally get it. (laughs) Okay. So if you could go back to those early days of Epic and give yourself one piece of advice, what would that be? Actually, two things come to mind. So one is to learn more about fund development. (laughs) So whether that's great writing or fundraising or cultivating major donors, like I had no experience in any of that. I like assisted maybe on one grant ever (laughs) before that. So I think that would have been really beneficial for me. But the other part is to know who you're working with and who to trust and how much to trust them. Because in the beginning, no one's getting paid. So yeah. knowing how to manage that so that there's realistic expectations so that you're not let down by somebody because you set unrealistic expectations of them volunteering their time. Yeah. So being really careful about who you recruit. And so how do you vet that though? Like, how do you know Because, you know, people are so, when they hear about a new organization or new program and you're all excited about it, you're talking to a friend, they're going to get super pumped about it too. So how do you know that this person is really going to commit and follow through versus 
this person's really excited in the moment, but like two weeks from now, I'm not going to be able to get a response to my email. <laughs> right. I, that's really hard, especially if you're in the very beginning and, you're, and yeah. you're, you're trying to just develop everything and you don't have existing programming yet for them to see and be a part of. I really do think a lot of it comes down to like realistic expectations and meeting with someone saying, here's what I need. Here's what you're offering what's realistic in mm-hmm. here and having that conversation. Cause those are conversations I didn't have. People just came to me and was like, I have experience doing this and I want to help. And I'd be like, great. And then, like you said, three weeks later, people are ghosting me and not, and not <laughs> returning my emails, which then leaves projects half done and creates more work for me than if I had just started it and did it myself in the beginning. It really just comes down to clear expectations of what can someone realistically do and, and how can they support you in a realistic way. Yeah. And it almost reinforces that founder syndrome thinking where early on people were, you know, said they were committed to the organization and they were all excited and then they stopped showing up. So you're like, man, I just have to do everything myself. It's not going to get done unless I do it. (laughs) And it just perpetuates that until, you know, 70 years down the line, you're still on the board of directors. Don't say that. Don't say that. (laughs) That is not my goal. (laughs) That's the advice. Well, what's a success story that has stood out to you? Because now Epic's been in operation for close to seven to eight years now. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been so many amazing youth who have graduated through the program, but is there one story that maybe stands out as kind of unique or exceptional? It's really hard to say one. We definitely have a lot of young people who come into our program with these expectations that have been put on them or lack of expectations that you see them flourish. And so So one young person who comes to mind who was on our very first team was told he would never graduate high school. Like, he's not really going to get a full-time job. There was a lot of you're not going to's. And so he joined our program. Now he just graduated with two associate degrees from a community college where he lives now. And so for people to say he was never going to graduate high school to now going to school and getting two degrees at the same time, it's a vast difference of understanding his abilities and pushing through all that and learning how to to be a self-advocate and all of that. And we see that with a lot of young people of coming in and they're told, nope, you're not going to graduate. You're not going to get a job. You can't live on your own. You can't do X, Y, and Z. And through Epic, they're finding their voice and how to push through that and get those jobs and do whatever it is that they want to do. Wow, that's a really cool story. And it goes for everyone who ever hears, you know, you're not going to do X, Y, and Z because you have this issue or because, you know, you have this characteristic. And it just shows that service is really a way that you can kind of find what you're good at and thrive through doing service. And it is not limited to just, you know, anyone. It could be literally anyone. So that's really cool. I think it's a really cool message that you're sending out, not only to young people with disabilities, but, you know, just people everywhere. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. So what is the hardest thing about leading an organization? The hardest thing is, I think, managing the work and the expectations and having a personal life. (laughs) Um, I mean, like you said, in the very beginning, all of our conversations were about epic yeah you know (laughs) that's all my life was so I think for me that was the hardest thing it's still not easy it's gotten a lot better at it but it's still not easy (laughs) but being able to to learn how to manage having a life and being healthy and really investing into this mission and this work that you've 
you've signed yourself up for now and, and not wanting to drop the ball on that. Yeah, right. Because once a program's out there and you've recruited young people to be on a service warrior team, it's not like a year down the line, you could say, well, I need to take a break. Yeah, there's no turning back at that <laughs> right. point. You're, you, you're done. You're on. Yeah. Well, that's so important to let people know, though, is that once you've founded this organization, you're serving you know, a set group of people, they are now relying on you for this service. You can't Mm -hmm. let them down. So taking care of yourself early on is so important because you need to have the stamina to keep this going year after year. So along the same lines then, so early on, you weren't that good at this, but now (laughs) what do you do for (laughs) self-care? Well, I'm still not going to say I'm really good at it. Um, I've created more of a balance in my life. I think one thing came from, I mean, we talked about before, trusting people with the work. And so that freed up, once I started trusting people, freed up me being able to let go of things in certain ways to be able to have a life outside of work. And so for me, it has looked very different at, at different times. For me, a lot of the time now, like I will not talk about work outside of work. So even if I'm, I have a lot of friends who have worked at Epic or who are on the board of Epic, but if we're hanging out on Friday night, I don't want to spend three hours talking about Epic. That's not healthy for me or any of us. For me was setting boundaries with myself and then ultimately other people of like, no, if you email me on a Saturday, I'm not going to email you back until Monday. I am hopefully if I'm really holding myself to a standard, I'm not even going to see that email until Monday. Yeah. Um, so I think creating a, a support system of people who understand that you need to have those boundaries and how important those boundaries are and supporting you in those boundaries and being able to to look at you and be like, what are you doing on your phone now? put it down. And so learning how to do that, I think is, is really important and learning how to, to shut work off, which can be really hard is important. Yeah, definitely. So having more people work with you kind of helped take the workload off of you. Mm -hmm. So that gave you the opportunity to think about ways you can enjoy life more and, you know, hang out with friends and not talk about Epic or, you know, go for a walk, play with your dogs. (laughs) What have you? So Last thing, where can people learn more about Epic? So website, social media, throw it at us. So website is epicleaders with an S on the end dot org. There has all the information about our programs, how to get involved from volunteering to staff positions, anything and everything is on our website. But we are also on social media. So Instagram is at Epic Leaders. Facebook is backslash epic leaders we do have twitter which is epic underscore leaders but i'm not gonna lie our twitter game at epic (laughs) is not very good so i would focus more on the instagram and facebook um but those are the ways to really learn about stuff that we're doing but also the great thing about instagram and especially facebook for us is you can really see it we post a lot of pictures we have a lot of albums on facebook of our service words through the years and videos to really get a better idea of who we are and what we do Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. You've given us so much really helpful information. And I really hope that listeners out there can learn a lot and take from your advice on how to start a nonprofit. Thank you. (laughs) Be better about that (laughs) self-care. Thank you. 
Before you go, would you like to receive exclusive tips and resources to help you build an exceptional nonprofit organization? If this sounds like something you'd like, head on over to thirdsuite.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter. This is a short email packed with tons of helpful links, as well as exclusive opportunities available for subscribers only. Okay, guys, thanks so much for listening. See you next week.